Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, I uh, My name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here at Advent, and um, it's good to be here together. Um, you know, uh, one of the things Jackie prayed just sort of sparked something in my mind uh, that we don't really talk a lot about. Um, but as uh, we believe um, that no matter who you are, there's not this special category of sainthood, right? When so when Jackie said we pray for the saints, what he means is we pray for those people who are in Jesus Christ, those people who have placed their faith in Jesus. And part of why we, I, I mentioned that is that we believe that in this state, right, prior to Jesus coming back again, that we exist as this kind of duality of sinner and saint, right? That we are saints. We are made holy by Jesus Christ, yet we are still sinners. We still struggle. And so today... Um, as we continue in our passage, uh, kind of our, our sermon series, um, we're coming to Genesis chapter 3. Right? Everything up until now has been, it has been good, it has been good. God has created the world. He's uh, created, I mean, it, it wasn't good that man was alone, but then God created a helper suitable for him, right? So we've gone through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and now we're coming to Genesis 3. And this, uh, we're, we're going slowly through this. Um, and so today we're focusing specifically on the temptation of Genesis chapter 3, on the temptation of Adam and Eve. And I say that because as saints, we are still tempted because we are also still sinners. No matter who you are this morning, whether you are a Christian or not, you struggle with temptation, just like Adam and Eve here do. All right, so... Um, but before we begin reading, I want to set the stage a little bit because when we last left off, Adam was like naming the animals, right? He was looking for a helper suitable for him. And so God made Eve, right? And she was like at last the one that he had been waiting for. She was at last bone of his bone, right? Um, and flesh of his flesh. She was that partner to go and to have dominion and to fill the earth and subdue it. But we're about to meet a particular creature that we haven't really encountered in the passages up to this point, right? We're going to meet a serpent. And a lot of ink has been spilled over the exact nature of the serpent, of this creature, right? But one of the challenges is, is, and why there is so much ink spilled over it, is because the passage never calls the serpent the devil or Satan, right? It actually never even calls the serpent here evil, Um but the passage never needs to identify the serpent as the devil or Satan because the serpent's role in this story is as tempter, right, and deceiver. And that's exactly what the word Satan means. Um, Satan is actually more of a title, right, uh, 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 than it is a name. Ha-Satan, which is what it means the, uh, in Hebrew, the Satan, so to speak, is the adversary, the one who accuses, who tempts, who deceives. 
right? And so evil is at work in this passage, right? Through the accuser, through the tempter. But the passage is also clear here that the serpent is nothing other than a creature, part of the created order. So as evil is introduced, we should be keenly aware of the fact that personal evil is nothing like our personal God, right? This is not the opposite counterforce to the goodness of God, right? Where good and evil are in some sort of battle against one another. It's not a counterpart part to His goodness and power. The serpent is created just like we are. Right? And as we will find out by reading other parts of Scripture, the devil, right, the personal evil, is nothing other than a fallen angel, still a creature. Right? Different from mankind with different abilities and powers and so forth, but nothing like the Creator. Right? Not a deity and no match for Almighty Creator God. And so God is not like battling this cosmic force of evil. He, this isn't even like the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Who never, ever actually beat the Harlem Globetrotters, right? But somehow they're in the same category, right? This isn't the Texas Rangers against the Houston Astros who never are able to beat us, right? Um, no, um, he is under God's control, beneath him. But as we will see here, the serpent comes to accuse, to tempt, and to disrupt God's good world. The temptation, though, and part of why I wanted to say all this stuff ahead of time, is to focus our attention upon the serpent, right? right well, what does that mean for, for us? Um, but I want to actually focus more of our attention on Adam and Eve, on the nature of temptation and how uh, and why, th- th- what this teaches us. So let's not pay as close of attention to the serpent and a little bit closer uh, to Adam and Eve. So as we read, um, you have the uh, Pew Bibles with you or you can read with us on the screen. We're reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we we are grateful that you give us your word and that you you tell us about who you are and about this world uh, that we live in. And so, Father, I pray that as we think about the nature of temptation, um, that you would give us 
uh, ability to see into our own hearts, ability to see what you have uh, for us this morning, and give us, um, give us hearts to turn toward you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So looking at a passage like this, we need to ask the question, where does temptation come from? Right? Is the nature of temptation that it comes from the thing that tempts us? Right? Is, it, is it the chocolatey goodness that beckons to us? Right? Is, it the, is it the chocolate that tempts us? Right? Does temptation come from within? Right? Is it our heart's desire for that sweet taste of chocolate yet again? Right? Is it that that we long for something sweet at the end of the day? Or maybe right now? Um, or does temptation come from this outside evil force? Right? Is it the devil that made you do it? Um, that tempted you to, to overeat and therefore to want more something sweet or chocolatey at the end of the day. Um, my family and I really enjoy watching America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all watch that. It's been going on, I think, for as long as I've been alive almost. Um, a year or two ago, they had a particular series where they asked families to submit videos of, of their children in kind of a compromising uh, situation. So uh, the parent would set up a camera in the kitchen and they would lay out a special dessert, typically candy, um, and then they would invite the child in. And the child is wondering, okay, what's going on? What did I do to earn this special treat? And the parent is just like, oh, it's just, you know, something special, no big deal. Um, we're going to, you know, this is just a, a treat, but hold on one second. I have to leave the room. Um, and you just have to wait to eat it until I get back, right? So they've already set up the camera, it's recording, and they leave the room, and it's supposed to video the child's ability to withstand the temptation of the candy, right? Um, most of the time, the child fails, right? They typically begin squirming, they're staring at it, it's beckoning to them, right? And there's no parent there to tell them otherwise, and they're going to get it anyway, so why not get it now, right? Um, who is to be blamed for the temptation that the kids face, or what even is to be blamed for that temptation? Was it the dessert itself, right, that they could almost taste was it the dessert that was beckoning to them, teasing them? Was it their own hearts that wanted a treat, right? I've done something. I've earned this treat. I am special, and I'm going to have the treat. Or was it this outside evil authority that, that created this tempting situation, right? The parent in this, in this scenario. Um, well, what we find in this passage is that for us, temptation actually comes from all, all three, right? all of the above. We're tempted by outside things, and we are tempted from within, by our heart's own desires. And that's what's going on here with Adam and Eve, and that's how it works with us as well. Right? And so this morning, I want to focus on the two aspects of this passage, which are the temptation that comes from without, right? the outside temptation, and then the temptation that comes from within. So without and within. Well, this passage tells us that the serpent is the craftiest of all of the animals. Right? And that description, um, that description is actually morally neutral. Right? The, the phrases and the words that are being used here is not to accuse the serpent here. 
Um, it means that the serpent is wiser than all of the other creatures. Not that it is necessarily more deceitful, but that craftiness can be used for both good and ill. And now the serpent is going to use it for ill. Right? The serpent is going to use it to deceive. So the serpent approaches the woman and speaks to her. And his deceit is crafty. Because we find out rather than attack God or attack the woman's beliefs head on, he just asks a simple question, you know? I'm just asking. The question the woman, he questions uh, the woman about God and he gets the woman here to question God. He asks, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And we know from the earlier chapter that we read in Genesis chapter 2 that this characterization of God's word is patently untrue. Right? God gave Adam and Eve every plant in the garden for food. You may eat freely of any tree of the garden except for the tree in the middle of the garden. But the question of the serpent here is designed to get Eve to believe that God is stingy and withholding, right? unwilling to provide for or to bless His creatures. Right? Instead of all that God says yes to, Eve is now focused on the one thing that He has said no to. Or at least, maybe even not yet to, right? It's not clear whether or not at some point it will become okay for Adam and Eve to eat of that tree. So instead, uh, the, the, the way the serpent words the question, the way Eve receives the question, she never stops to think of any other reason why God might have placed such a prohibition upon her and upon Adam. And so the serpent is talking chiefly to Eve, Right? And in his questioning, he gets Eve to question the goodness of God. Because in her answer to the serpent, she's made God more restrictive even than he actually was. And, and his word actually indicates. Right? She, she, sort of, <clears throat> she sort of tries to hear to defend God. Right? She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the one in the middle... Right? That she, so she's being accurate here, but then she shifts gears and she adds to what God had said. She says, not only, you know, you may not eat of it, but then she adds, neither shall you touch it. Right? God never said anything about touching it. Now Eve, like the serpent, is making things up and putting words into God's mouth. Right? She's created this extra barrier making God sound even more unreasonable and even more stingy. And we do this type of thing all the time in the church. I'm going to create a separate barrier to back up for what God has actually said. So instead of, uh, of, of allowing for the freedom where freedom has been given, we're going to create a new law to protect us from possibly violating that other law. She's created this extra barrier and she doesn't even stop there because there's another nuance in what she says back to the serpent that is different from what God has said. Right? God says in Genesis 2.17 when He prohibits them from eating of the tree, He says, um, <clears throat> when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And again, this is just a minor adjustment and I would not have caught it if a commentator hadn't pointed it out to me. Right? But... She doesn't, uh, uh, she says 
instead of you shall surely die, she says, lest you die. Right? Essentially guaranteeing that it will happen. Right now she's focusing specifically on how mean God is. Not that it's a possibility that when you eat of this tree, this condemnation is going to come upon you. But rather she's saying it is a guarantee. So Eve, in trying to refute the question of the tempting serpent, has misquoted God. She's, brought, she's bought into his temptation. And it's, it's next that the serpent makes a tempting and deceitful claim to her. The, the serpent doesn't just straight out lie, because that, would, that, that wouldn't be as tempting. Instead, the serpent crafts this kind of half-truth, half-lie. He says, you will not surely die. Which doesn't mean that you will not die, but more so means like, you won't die as soon as you eat of it. That's, that's what the serpent is essentially saying to her. It won't have that kind of immediate effect upon you. And then he tells this truth. Right? That eating of this tree will open their eyes. But he, he leaves out the part that, that God is, they're not ready for it. And it's actually going to do great harm to them. But in the way that the serpent makes it sound, it sounds as if God is envious and selfish of them. And he doesn't want them to be like him at all. Meanwhile, Adam is just like sitting there, silently taking it all in, right? Letting it all happen. And if you were wondering where Adam has been during this exchange, take a look at verse 6. It tells us that when Eve is ultimately tempted to eat of the fruit that she's not supposed to eat of, she then just gives some to her husband, right? Who was with her the entire time, right? And he eats of it. He's there all along, right beside her, not engaging in this dialogue, not helping his partner, not reminding Eve what God actually said. Not chasing the serpent away either. Not speaking up, not doing anything. What we see here is that temptation from outside of ourselves always begins with this questioning of God. Not asking questions of God in faith, but questioning of Him in anger. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to ask questions of God. We actually talk about quite a bit here at Advent that we want to create an environment where we ask a lot of questions. Right? In fact, doubts and questions are just a normal part of faith and life, and that's why we want to create that environment. But temptation will often take more and more root when we question God's character, and we don't do so in faith and with others. When we begin to question His goodness within ourselves, and we try and deal with it all by ourselves. Right? If God really loved me, then I wouldn't be struggling right now as I am. That's what we think in those moments. Right? If He was truly a good God, I'd be married, or I'd have this job, or I wouldn't be sick like I am. And in a world where everything is not the way that it is supposed to be, it is normal to ask those questions. The problem is where do we look for the answers? Do we listen to the right things? Or do we listen to our own voice? The voice of others? The voice of the tempter? Or do we listen to the voice of God? Right? The Psalms give us, in God's Word, faith-filled questions to work through our struggles. Right? We're given language along with the psalmist to ask, 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The problem isn't asking that question of God. The problem comes as we listen to the wrong things. That psalm goes on from there to give us language, to be angry with God in faith and with others. When we listen to the wrong things, trusting in others, trusting in in ourselves, or the things of this world more than God Himself. When we're silent, or we have people around us who are silent, as Adam is here around Eve. The problem comes when we begin to think that we know better than God. What to do or how to solve whatever problem it is that we find ourselves in. Right? When our crying out, our questioning becomes anger and then it becomes self-centered action. This is when we think, maybe God isn't what He says He is. And maybe I need to do something about it. Right? Maybe it is just time for me to get what I want. I'm tired of waiting. That candy is mine. Right? I'm not waiting for God to come back into this room. I'm going to eat it now. Um, and so those temptations become stronger and stronger as we listen to those outside voices and as we listen to others besides God Himself. Right? Those voices that tell us we deserve whatever it is that we're seeking. Or voices that tell us that the reason that we're suffering is not because we live in a broken world, but it's actually because maybe we worship a broken God. Not only that, but when we begin to question, when we begin to see that there is something that God said, you know, not now, to the desire for it, whatever it is that seems to grow when we focus more and more upon it. Eve didn't even care about the fruit on the tree until the serpent here points it out. Right? But now she begins to pay attention to it and it, it, it starts to characterize how much she's paying attention to it with all of the senses right, uh, that, that she has. Right? She sees that it is good, fruit, that it's beautiful. Right? She's probably smelling it, that it is a desirable to, to eat, meaning it's going to taste good. She's smelling it and it's, it's working in her olfactory systems. And so she's tasting it a little bit as well as she's smelling it, right? Now her mouth is watering and her senses are obsessed with it. She just can't get it out of her head. And this temptation seems to offer her this golden promise that if you can just reach out and take it, it will offer that sweet release that you've been looking for. And it will deliver you from whatever you are hiding from or whatever it is that is painful in your life. Whether that is sexual temptation, gluttonous temptation, covetous temptation, or the very first temptation to become like God. So that we wouldn't have to rely on Him for what we need and we wouldn't have to put on any limits that we want. Right? The serpent's temptation is the belief that we could just decide for ourselves what is good and right. And we don't have to listen to another authority. The temptation from outside grows and it grows and it intermingles with the temptation from within, making it almost seemingly impossible uh, to turn it down. So let's turn now to the temptation from within. Right, temptation for Adam and Eve, and particularly for us, 
is never just from outside of ourselves, right? It is never a valid and biblical excuse to say, you know, the devil made me do it, right? Um, the devil is the reason I cheated on my taxes, or the devil made me drink too much, right? Not only that, but it's never a valid and biblical excuse to say that someone else made me do it, right? It's my kid's fault that I keep getting so angry. Um, no, Temptations are never only the fault of those outside of us. Temptation is a matter of our own heart. It's a dispositional struggle that reveals what we truly love and what we truly worship in a disordered, messed up sort of way. From wanting and loving and desiring the wrong things, temptation from within reveals that. And so Eve not only listens to the serpent and listens to her own senses, she listens to her heart, right? As most pop songs these days talk about. And it's not a good thing, right? She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's her listening to her heart. She saw within her heart that eating from this tree was going to give her what she wanted. But now she desperately desires to become like God in knowing and judging good and evil. Right? Now she wants a life of independence, free from the need to rely upon God. And as we see in this passage, when the temptation leads uh, to disobedience, right, it actually it, it's accompanied by these feelings of guilt and shame because that is where this passage ends. So when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, our passage says that they are naked and ashamed. Whereas before they were naked, innocent, and unashamed, they are now ashamed. They're ashamed of their wrongdoing that is now exposed. And they want to get rid of that feeling of shame, that feeling of vulnerability, or at least to cover over it. And so they go out and they sow fig leaves together to do so. And when we, too, are tempted to sin, and we actually take of it, it always does something similar within us. We feel dirty. We feel exposed, naked, ashamed. And so there's a few different ways that we deal with it. Most of us in the West, we try to cover over our guilt and shame. We don't like that feeling of vulnerability. And so we just pretend that we were never vulnerable to begin with. We cover over our guilt and shame with the fig leaves of online shopping or TV watching or joining a wine club, right? Or we cover over our guilt and shame with the fig leaves of good things like dieting and exercise or, or going more fully into our work or more therapy, because we'd rather focus on something that's a little bit wrong and messed up in our life than focusing on where we were wrong and messed up in our life. But what we should do in the face of temptation from without and within is first to flee and second to turn toward God. The Bible tells us over and over again that we are to flee from our temptations. If we sit there and we stare at it, we're going to lose every single time, right? It grows within our hearts. If we examine it closely the way that Eve does here, kind of using her, her senses and imagining it and what it will be like, you're going to lose. God calls us to flee from our sin. Go away from wherever it is that you feel that temptation 
Go and, and do something active, even. Call a friend. Do something in those moments. But flee. We're told numerous times in the New Testament to flee different temptations that we find ourselves in. We're to flee from the sin and temptation of fornication. To, free, to flee idolatry. To flee the evils of the love of money. To flee our youthful lusts. Right? Over and over again, Paul tells the church to flee in those moments. The Bible tells us to get away from our temptations. But the problem is that our temptations also come from within. So wherever we go, our temptations can follow. So yes, fleeing is good, but that's not all that we need to do. We have to do something else as well. We must turn toward God. Listen to His Word and His grace. In the passage that was read for us earlier, that Judy read for us earlier, that's exactly what Jesus did in the face of temptation. He counters the temptation of Satan with the Scriptures themselves. He repeats God's words back to the tempter. But not only that, we see even as we read in other parts of the Gospels as Jesus is going to the cross and as He is fearful of what is about to come, what does He do in that moment? He prays Scripture back to God. He goes before Him in those moments. It's what Jesus does in the face of temptations. It's what Adam and Eve should have done. Right? Prayed to God, asking Him to be near, trusting that He is who He says He is, and it's what we should do. So the one very practical application I have for us as we struggle and deal with temptation, I don't know where you are, but no matter who you are, whether it's a light temptation or you are just in it, and it is like addiction, I would urge you, don't just stare at the temptation and, and, and deal with it silently by yourself. You will lose. You need to do something about it. You need to tell someone about it. Find someone who's trustworthy. Flee from it. Call them in those moments. And allow others to speak the words of God to you. What Adam should have done for Eve there. We cannot fight temptation alone, but we need others in our life to help us. Right? To not just sit there silently like Adam has done. So find someone to bring them in to what it is that you're going through. And allow for them to help you by reminding you of God's word, of his light, and of his life. So let me conclude with this. Um, I know that we began kind of a, a, the, the sermon in a lighthearted way talking about temptation and, and candy. And we can all relate to that. But the vast majority of us are not struggling with the temptation of a lighthearted candy. Right? Temptation is very real. Um, it might be temptation to lie. It might be temptation to drink. It might be temptation to hatred. I don't know what it is. But we all are struggling with a different aspect of temptation. And so in no way was I trying to cheapen what it is that you're going through by comparing it to candy. Right. Until Jesus returns or calls us home, we live in light of a world. It, it, we live in a world where we are tempted. But let C.S. Lewis's words be a comfort to us this morning. This was in, in our bulletins. Y'all can uh, flip to the very front. 
This is a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. What I love about this quote is that it is a good and positive reminder that part of why we know how hard temptation is, is that in Jesus Christ we are called to fight it, and ideally we are fighting it. So fight on, even when you lose. And the good news for us this morning, pardon me, the good news for us this morning is that though we are tempted, our successes or our failures in fleeing temptation does not cause God to love you or bless you any different. To bless us and love us with His mercy and grace, that is not, um, He does not demand our success in fleeing before He gives it to us. We don't earn His favor and His love. He doesn't push us away. We have a God who pursues us again and again. He enters into our darkness. He finds us. He covers us with the obedience of Christ. And though we're tempted to fail, Christ Christ was tempted and yet without sin. And as we pursue Him in faith, His faithfulness covers us. Let that be the hope that allows us to fight and continue to fighting temptation. Would you all pray with me? Father, we pray uh, and give you thanks this morning for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And though we are tempted and though we lose in the face of temptation, um, Lord, give us the strength and the courage again and again not to hide behind the fig leaves that we sow for ourselves, but to come and to find you and to find others. Help you, may your grace cover over our shame and our guilt to give us the strength to flee the power of sin and temptation that comes from both within and outside. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, evil has been defeated and will ultimately be defeated. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.